Children's church time, children's church time. As I'm reflecting on the beautiful moment at the end of the song, there's Cooper. Dad, Dad, is it time? Yeah, it's time. As we read through the Gospel of John, you're seeing stories that he handpicked. The question is why? If he actually wrote this Gospel years and years later after the other Gospel writers wrote theirs, which we see in history, then why? If the other three Gospel writers had so clearly laid out the life story of Jesus and his power and his might, why? Why would John, one of Jesus' closest, best friends, All these years later, decades, 40, 50 years after Jesus has been taken into heaven, why now would he sit down to pen this letter? Why would he use these stories? Why? Jesus transforming water into wine and no one notices. Why include that? Jesus meets with a Pharisee in the middle of the night. And still Jesus can't convince him to believe. Why include that? Jesus travels into the midst of Samaria where they hated every single one of those stinky people. Jews just couldn't stand them. And Jesus decides, you know what, let's go that way. Let's show them some love. And revival breaks out in a Samaritan town. None of the gospel writers include the story. Why? Why would the Jews want to hear about Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus? And John writes it down. So as we ask ourselves these questions, you hope that it reveals something that John is trying to teach you and me, as well as the audience at that time when he penned this letter. It's not just more information on Jesus. We have that already. We know where he was born, where he lived, what he did, and where he died. This is more than that. It's who he was. It was the difference he came to make. All of these stories play such an important role in that. Yes, no one noticed the miraculous changing of water into wine. It didn't lead tens of thousands of people to follow the king. But it was symbolic of a change taking place. People no longer would have to come before God dipping their hands in water to be clean enough to be in his presence. They could come through Jesus. No longer was temple worship going to be about getting the best bang for your buck on a couple doves. Two dollars, two fifty, two fifty for the doves. It wasn't going to be about that anymore. The temple was going to become a house of prayer. People like Nicodemus on the Sanhedrin, on the ruling council. People were going to be taught that they needed to not simply be restored into a better version of themselves, but reborn into a whole new person. That's what proper worship of God looks like. Jesus was speaking to one of the teachers of the nation. Nicodemus taught everybody on how to live. And Jesus said, it's not about living. It's about being reborn. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual change and a spiritual change and a spiritual change. And that matters to you. So that's why this gospel still applies now like it did then. Because it matters to us as we raise our kids that matters to us as we reach our city. Because we could recite all the stories of Jesus, and that might not cut it. 
we might need to know why. Why is he worth worshiping? Why does he make a difference? What's the point of this whole gathering? Is it to sing songs? What does he want? So this morning, as we dip our toes into chapter 4, we see Jesus heading into the Samaritan land. It's also going to bring to your attention how ridiculous the story of the Good Samaritan is. They hated Samaritans. So the fact that the Samaritan becomes the hero in the Good Samaritan story, oh, that would have bugged them. Oh, that would have bugged them so much. That's just an aside. This, this is about worship. This is a spiritual story. This is John chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. This is verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing. Let's get that clear. It was his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, pause for a second and look at these first three verses. Here's the situation we're up against. Jesus has become so popular, his following has become so great, that he's in danger now of staying near the capital. He's got to distance himself, because the people in that region now are starting to get suspicious of the following that he has. They are starting to look at ways to get rid of Jesus, because he's drawing people away from the way worship has always been done. He's even baptizing more people than John the Baptist. But they clarify it's not Jesus, it's the disciples. Why would they clarify this? Most likely because in the Bible it talks about the baptism of Jesus. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a regeneration. It's about us receiving salvation. John's baptism was repentance. Jesus's is brand new life. So this isn't Jesus's baptism yet. This is just them baptizing in the form of John. This is people coming, seeking repentance before the Lord and being baptized. So Jesus has to head for the high country, head for Galilee and get away from the capital. And this is going to mark the rest of his ministry. He's no longer going to be safe in Judea. All right, let's keep going. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. He had to go through. Why did he have to go through Samaria? When I was reading in the commentary, it said that this phrase, that he had to, it's the same phrase they use in chapter 3, that someone has to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It's divine necessity. It's not an option. It's the only option. Had to. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now literally, he did not have to. There was a major highway that went all the way around Samaria. It connected Jerusalem down in the south to the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all the beautiful places up in the north. It connected them. Because a good Jew was not going to walk through Samaria. They wouldn't do it. There was no way. So they walk around it. They would take this highway that would go all the way around the country. Jesus, though, had to lead them through it. I wonder for the disciples if this was the very first time they'd ever walked through Samaria. I wonder if people spit on them as they walked through Samaria. 
I wonder how people looked at them as they walked down the road in Samaria. They weren't welcome there. These were a different people. This was a part of the nation of Israel that had been separated from them for hundreds of years. They only read the first five books of the Bible, so their worship looked different. Their belief in Scripture looked different. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim. They wouldn't even go down to the temple. They weren't welcome at the temple in Jerusalem. So they worshipped in Samaria. And Jesus leads his disciples right through the middle of it. They get to a famous spot, a spot where Jacob had lived, the well that he had dug. This was historic. This had roots going back to Genesis. And Jesus, being a human, is exhausted. Let go of this myth of Jesus being this superhuman entity. The guy walked all day. He was exhausted. He sat down by the well. He was thirsty. He was a man. Filled with the Holy Spirit, but a man nonetheless. It's noon. So beautiful about that. The well's going to be nice and quiet. Because there would never be another person drawing water at the heat of the day. Jesus could sit there quietly by himself. No one's going to bug him. He won't bump into anybody. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, First, what are you doing at the well at noon? (laughs) Second, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to go buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. The one commentary I was reading said, if you look at the original languages, when Jesus asks her for a drink, it's as if he's asking to use the very same cup she drinks from. This was an intimate ask. So for him, as she's drawing down her water pail to bring it back up, the pail, she would take the water home for her and her family, and Jesus asks for a drink out of it. This is a Jew sharing a cup with a Samaritan. This is absolutely not going to fly. This isn't okay. And now you have a man speaking to a woman, acknowledging her almost as if they're on the same playing field, which again, it just crosses so many boundaries. This wouldn't happen. And he's a Jewish male. So not only did she come out to the well at noon to be alone because she's avoiding everyone else, it's the heat of the day, but she shows up at her local well, and there's a guy standing there, great. And it's a Jewish rabbi. Why is there a Jewish rabbi at the well? Jesus is crossing over every divide in this one simple request, can I have a drink of your water? How would the disciples have reacted if they were there? It's probably a good thing they were in town. Look at this woman. Ew. Guys, let's back up from the well. Let's let her get her water in peace. Let's not let the smell of her Samaritan clothes get on us. Let's just back up. But the disciples aren't there. It's just Jesus. Like these are the kind of things you can imagine as you're reading this story. It doesn't make sense. Let's keep going. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, If you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Living water. Again, it reminds me of Nicodemus, remember? Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Right away, Nicodemus goes, that's not physically possible, Jesus. And Jesus is trying to draw him into a spiritual conversation. It wasn't physical at all, the whole conversation. And now Jesus offers living water. And she's holding this bucket, going, is there a well I've never seen? This is my hometown. Like, Jacob dug this a thousand years ago. This is the best water we've ever had. It's never ran out. And you found a better water source. You don't even have a pail. Where's your, where's your rope? How are we going to lower it in and bring out this water that's alive? Who do you think you are that you can walk into our country up to my town and tell me that you found better water than I know about? Are you better than Jacob? This is his water. It's great water. It's, it's kept my, my children alive. It's kept my parents, my grandparents alive. What are you offering me? But it's not physical at all. It's a spiritual conversation. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water, this is verse 13, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And that was verse 14. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, if you stop and read this story very slowly, I think you'll notice something in verse 15 you may have missed before. Jesus is offering her a water source a spring of water, not a pail of water, running water. Something that's supposed to lead to eternal life, life that will last forever. And her response is, I would love some of that. I don't want to come back to this well anymore. If I could have water so I never get thirsty, so I never have to make the walk back out here again, if I could have any way of avoiding this experience, I would love that. But we don't know why she's out here at noon. We don't know why in the heat of the day she's out here alone. We just know that she's chosen this particular time. And it must be to avoid everybody else. So she's missing the fact that something spiritual is being offered to her. And she's just looking at this great opportunity that's been presented. She can stay home. Her water jug will stay full. She'll never have to embrace the shame of what she's hiding again. Jesus, though, being full of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, is going to ask her about that very thing. What is she hiding? Verse 16. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus just reveals her deepest pain. He knows it before she can even reveal it. Knowing this now gives you insight into the fact that Jesus knew this the whole time. 
the whole time they were having this interaction, she wasn't just a woman, wasn't just a Samaritan. She's been rejected five times. And now the man she's with won't even marry her. See, back in that time, a woman couldn't even request divorce. It wasn't up to her. It was completely up to the guy. He held all the power. And this shows us that five different guys said, I don't want you anymore. 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 Five times. So now she comes to draw water at the heat of the day and avoids everybody. That's her pain. So why would this Jewish rabbi that knows all of this still want to be in her presence? Why would this Jewish rabbi want to share her water cup? Jesus doesn't ask her to bring her husband out because it's vital that he be there for this experience. He's showing her that he knows her pain. He knows her shame. And he's still willing to interact. He's still willing to offer this spring of living water forever. The eternal, life-giving, running water to her, even though this is her hurt. This is her darkness that she carries. How would the disciples have reacted if they found out she had been divorced five times? doesn't phase Jesus. Isn't that a humbling moment to realize Jesus knows our shame and our pain even when we respond to him, come close to him? The conversation takes a major turn at this point. In verse 19, you're going to notice a difference in how she addresses Jesus, but also the direction of the conversation. She recognizes that she's now in the presence of the supernatural. He has knowledge from God that there's no other way he could know. So God must speak to him. He must be a prophet, not just a rabbi. So pay attention to where she takes the conversation in verse 19. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors, they worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, you claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This had been the dividing point in between their nations for hundreds of years. The Jews worshipped on Gerizim, or the Jews worshipped at the temple, right? The Samaritans on the mountain. Like this, this was worth dying over to them. This was a big deal. This was the big issue that separated them, that their worship of God was so different. And she says to this prophet, we worship here, you worship there. This divides us. But you're a holy man. What are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, a time is coming where it just won't matter. A time is coming where you can pray on Mount Gerizim, and that's fantastic. You can go to the city in Jerusalem. You can pray. But there's more to it than that. Keep reading. Don't stop yet. You're not at the end of the story. Verse 22. He says, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation's from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming, and it has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit. His worshipers must worship in the Spirit, and they must worship in truth. The Samaritans only had a partial knowledge of God. As so he says, you're worshiping something you don't really know. We Jews are worshiping something that we do know. Salvation is actually going to come through us. The Messiah is going to come through the Jews. He's going to be in the line of David, a son of Abraham. He's going to take the throne of Israel. He comes through us. We know that. He's ours. You don't quite know that. Samaritans, you don't read the entire scriptures. You don't read the entire Old Testament. You're missing out on part of it. But God is spirit. And for hundreds of years, we fought over the right way to worship. Do you have to go down to the temple and buy the overpriced doves? Can you go on Mount Gerizim and pray to the Lord? We fight over it and we're willing to die over it. Because this is the way it's always been done. And it separated these peoples to the point where they won't even walk through each other's country anymore. They hate each other. Jesus says, that's not going to matter soon. Because the time is coming and has now come when worship is becoming spiritual. Nicodemus isn't going to have to become a better person. He's going to have to have spiritual rebirth. We've we got to quit stealing from each other at the money-changing tables. Worship is spiritual prayer. We've got to quit dipping our hands in these jars of water to make ourselves clean enough for God. Come through Jesus. It's a spiritual matter. God is spirit. Isn't that just as applicable today as it is back then? Like we need to just let go of all the different things we piled on top of spiritual worship and just recognize that God is spirit and what he wants is us to worship in truth. In truth. So if you worship in the car, fantastic. And if you worship out in the field, that's amazing. And if you worship through singing, that's good. And if you worship through prayer, keep it up. And if you love worshiping with the big church family, I do too. If you'd rather just worship alone, God hears you. But we don't have to die over which mountain we worship God on anymore. Why does the conversation go this way all of a sudden, though? Just a second ago, we were talking about water. And now we're talking about the temple? She realizes she's in the presence of the divine. She's in the presence of something beyond herself. Jesus doesn't just offer water to quench a momentary thirst. He's offering to give her water that lasts forever. He's offering her life that lasts forever. Okay, the last two verses, 25, 26. The woman said this, that I know the Messiah called Christ. He's coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. He'll explain it when he comes. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he I am he. He goes back to a name and a title given in the Torah. Moses interacting with God when he calls himself I am. 
Samaritans don't read the rest of the Old Testament. So for Jesus to present himself as the king, it wouldn't have worked for her. For Jesus to present himself as the next David taking the throne, she needed to know that the redeemer that Moses promised was here. And Jesus has come to redeem her as I am. She's a woman that's been rejected five times. And we can't sit for an hour and a half in a church service. We get distracted. I have to send my kids away to children's church. They can't sit still. This is difficult for us sometimes. It's difficult for us to focus. Like we try to go into these times of singing and we have to like very intentionally like try to lay down our thoughts because they're so distracting to us. Like this woman had lived a large portion of her life feeling disconnected from God. Who would redeem a woman divorced five times? Who would have the audacity to love somebody like that? Jesus would. The current man she's living with won't even marry her. But Jesus would share her cup. Jesus would redeem her. He would offer her life. He is the Messiah that she's been waiting for. We're not going to read the rest of the story. It goes on for quite a ways, and it's beautiful. The disciples come back from being in town. This lady leaves her water and runs into town, tells everyone she's encountered the Messiah. They all begin to believe what she's saying, and they start to run out to the well. And the disciples get out there, and Jesus says, Hey, guys, take a look. The harvest is already ready, and we just started planting. Turn around. And here's this whole town of people walking out to the well, Jesus is like, not bad for, for a few minutes at the well, right? And the disciples are like, Jesus, you still have to eat something. You haven't had lunch. And Jesus is like, look, everything that I need is right here. Doing the Father's will is my food. This is what sustains me. And the whole Samaritan town begs Jesus to stay. He stays for two days. He shares the gospel with them. They hear his words and they believe. Revival breaks out in this town. They believe the very words of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke didn't even think this was worthy of writing down. But there's something to this story. John wants people to know. Questions for us. As I'm reading this story, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about my life. I'm thinking about your life. First thing I wondered is whether she'd be welcome here. Would we have responded to her like the disciples would have, or would we have responded like Jesus? Like, would we be comfortable with someone like that in our midst? Do we want the drug addict coming to know Jesus in our place? Do we want the homeless? Do we want the poor? Do we want the people whose society has said, just leave them alone at the well? Don't, we don't have to bring them to the temple. They can just stay outside. Do you know what? We'd rather have Nicodemus. Nicodemus, why don't you come and sit? There's lots of room here at the front. Nicodemus, come. Jesus says, actually, let's walk through Samaria. Let's see who we can find. Would she have been welcome here? We can get comfortable with the way that we like church and the people that we like here. The next I wrote down is, is our focus offering life to those who need it the most or has our focus become ourselves? That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Like, is that our hope? 
as a church is to offer life to those who don't have it. Because if it is, then we should shape everything that we do to achieve that goal. If your goal is to have an incredible farm, you shape everything you do to achieve that goal. Everything. And if you're doing anything that's not achieving that goal, you cut it out. So if our goal is to offer life to those who need it the most, how are we doing that? How do our ministries, how does our budget, how does our leadership, how does our worship service, how does all of this follow the path of giving life to those who don't have it? Because if our focus drifts, which it can, and the ministries are about us, and service is about us, and the budget's about us, and the leadership's about us, and it's all about us, and we just come here, and we just like the way the church scratches our back, it just feels really nice, and we just go home thinking, oh, I love church, and we go to the ministries, and they really fit the needs of our families, and they just scratch our back, and we're like, oh, that's really nice too, and let's, let's form a budget this year. Let's make sure the budget takes good care of us. How are we reaching out with it? Well, that's not important. And the budget just scratches our back a little bit more. And then as soon, as soon as anything gets in the way of that, ooh. Like, I just, I wonder, like, I lead youth group, I lead Sunday school, I, I lead some of these things, and I wonder, have I done that? Has it become more about scratching the backs of the people who are a part of youth group? Or have we found effective ways to share life with people? Because that's the point. Is to share life with people. And if we've drifted from that, let's find our focus again. And third thing I wrote down is, have we allowed our worship practices or preferences to divide us as a people? This, the heart of the story, the Samaritans and Jews drastically divided from each other because of their practices, their traditions. That's tough. And we as a church, do we allow everything that's a part of our church, whether it's the worship service, whether it's things outside of the worship service, whether it's the preaching, whether it's the way we do offering and prayer, whether it's the way we do baptism, whether it's the way we sing songs, like have we allowed that to divide us? And if it is, let's clarify our vision a little bit here. If you and I can't agree on how we're going to worship, then all we're going to do is fight. You're going to want to worship at the mountain. I'm going to want to worship at the temple. We're not going to talk to each other. Eventually just split us to the point where we drive around each other's country because we don't even want to go through anymore. Or can we be true spiritual worshipers of God? God is spirit, and that's what he desires. So can you and I, as worshipers of him, find common ground? Could you imagine... Years later, Jesus dies, rises again, goes to heaven. And now Paul, the missionary, is planting all these churches. And the disciples, Peter, John, are planting all these churches. And they're Samaritans and Jews in the same church. Worshiping God in the same church. Are they on the mountain? No. Are they in the temple? No. But they're worshiping God in spirit together. How did they do it? How can we do it? If we sing songs about the cross, the one thing that unites all of us, this is the one thing. Whether, I don't know, 
Whether you like new music or old music or loud music or quiet music, whether you like a preacher that's really long or really short, whether you love children's church or don't care if there's children's church, that unites us. Whether you wish church was earlier or later, half an hour shorter, whether you wish we sponsored 50 missionaries as a church or just one, that unites us. Whether you like our elders or don't like our elders, or whether you love this building or wish we had a different one, that unites us. That's just the beauty of it. This is the unifier. That we worship a God of spirit in spirit. That's the unifier. And yes, we're always going to disagree on the peripheral things, but that's the unifier. That's how Samaritans and Jews are able to worship as one in one church. That's the unifier. Are we going to allow that to unify us? Are we going to allow the peripheral things to divide us? Because this last year has been tough, real tough. Everything in this world wants to divide us. Don't you notice that? Every conversation you have with someone can so easily drift to something that just divides people. And the cross is just crying out, be united as spiritual worshipers. Did you get your, did you get your needles or not? Like... Oh, like all of a sudden people get pulled apart and then you look at the cross and you're like, it just pulls all of us back together. Do you, like, do you like wearing a face mask or not? And all of a sudden we're mad at each other. And then you look at the cross and it just pulls us all back together again. Because that's the one thing that we all agree on. But sometimes we take our eyes off of that because we'd rather focus on the things that divide us. And Jesus is just reaching out to this poor woman to try to unify her back into the family of God when everything else in the world is pulling her away. She's not worthy. And Jesus welcomes her back in. Heavenly Father, I want to pray this morning for powerful, life-giving transformation in our church. Jesus, I want to thank you that we are unified in your cross, that your sacrifice unifies the oldest to the youngest in our church family. That we should desire, and I want to desire more, to offer this life to people who don't have it in our community. The field is ripe for the harvest. There's thousands of people outside these doors who don't have life, and we can hand it to them but it's so easy to get upset about the things that divide us. Lord Jesus, would this story just cry out in our hearts this week when we bump into people that we don't love, when we bump into people that we don't agree with as we go to prayer but before a large church meeting next week? Would we just remember your extension of grace towards this Samaritan woman to welcome her back into your family, to offer her life eternal? Lord Jesus, you are the cornerstone of this church. You have been for 70 some years. And I pray that the next 75, we would reach this city with the gospel. We'd be united on mission. One family with one heart to change this world, to hand life to people that don't have life. And I pray, Lord, that we'd find a way to do that together as one family that grace would be the flavor of this church. 
that all of our ministries would just be covered in grace. Our conversations would be covered in grace. In the world when Satan tries to find more ways to divide us, when he brings more divisive conversations into our Facebook feeds, and we will just open our mouths with grace that other people don't deserve, love and kindness, that Satan will not win this battle. He is the enemy. He's the enemy. So Lord, cover us in your spiritual armor to fight this battle, to fight this fight, so that Satan will not win in this place. Because we are going to fight that he would not win in this place. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus, would you shine your face upon your church this week? Would you bless them and give them incredible hope? Would you drive them into rich moments of prayer? Would your grace wash over them? And would it set them free from the shame and the guilt and the pain that they carry? Would they find hope and joy in you this week? I pray that you'd be everything to us. You're amazing. And I can't wait for next week when I get to come back here and we talk about you again and sing to you again. I'm already excited. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you later.